Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and it really is a pleasure for me to welcome all of you to our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. I hope you'll all have a chance to return next week and over the next couple of months when you will have a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to see a third of our entire flock of Audubon birds. It um, is really a spectacular show of great historical significance as well. So uh, please do, do come back during regular museum hours uh, to see it. Um, I also want to urge you to, uh, to join us for our Bernard and Irene Schwartz classic film series, which is free with your admission during our pay-as-you-wish Friday nights. Um, also, we have a, a great crowd here. I hope every single one of you is a member. If you're not, my colleagues will be happy to sign you up when you leave this evening. Tonight's program, White House Series, First Families, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series, which is the heart of our public programs. As always, I'd like to thank Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz for their great support, which has enabled us to bring so many fabulous historians and writers to this auditorium. Thank you so much, Bernard and Irene. The program will last about an hour, and it will include a question and answer session. We'll invite audience members to come uh, up to each of the aisles uh, where there will be a standing microphone. We do this so that the speakers can hear your questions and so that the rest of the audience can hear your questions as well. Um, let's see, Kati Martin. Kati Martin has combined a career as a reporter and writer with human rights advocacy. We are thrilled to have you back, Kati. Thank you. From 2003 to 2008, she chaired the International Women's Health Coalition, and since 1980, she's published eight books, including Hidden Power, Presidential Marriages That Shaped History. She's contributed as a reporter to ABC News, NPR, and The New Yorker, among others, and her new wonderful book is Paris, A Love Story. We're also extremely pleased to welcome back Gil Troy, a professor of history at McGill University in Montreal. He's the author of several books of political history, including Mr. and Mrs. President, From the Trumans to the Clintons. He's also the editor of the revised edition of the multi-volume classic, History of Presidential Elections, and his latest book, Moynihan's Moment, was released in December. Unfortunately, due to unforeseen circumstances, Koki Roberts is unable to join us tonight, but we are extremely fortunate that David Nassau was able to take her place on very, very short notice. We're thrilled to have David with us. He is, of course, the author of the best-selling Andrew Carnegie, which was a Pulitzer Prize finalist and the winner of the New York Historical Society Prize in American History. He's the Arthur M. Schlesinger, Jr. Professor of History at the Grad Graduate Center of the City University of New York. His latest book is The Patriarch, The Remarkable Life and Turbulent Times of Joseph P. Kennedy. He'll be returning here on March 12th to discuss the relationship between Joe and Jack Kennedy in greater detail. We are also thrilled to have Leslie Stahl back with us this evening as our moderator. 
Leslie Stahl has been a correspondent for CBS's 60 Minutes for 22 seasons. Prior to joining 60 Minutes, Ms. Stahl was CBS News White House correspondent during the Carter, Reagan, and George H.W. Bush presidencies. And her experiences covering Washington for more than 20 years became the subject of her book, Reporting Live. She has a collection of Emmy Awards for her interviews and reporting, including a Lifetime Achievement Emmy, which she received in 2003. After the program, there will be a book signing by our authors. Uh, Dale will tell you more about that later on. But for now, please make sure that anything that makes a noise is switched off. And now, please do join me in welcoming our speakers to the stage. Can you hear us already? This is my favorite thing to do, to come here and to talk about presidents and tonight presidential families, which is even more delicious. Um, I, my plan is to start with a round of anecdotes and ask everyone on the panel for their best, favorite, presidential, first family anecdote. And I'm going to uh, call on moderator privilege and go first, because <laughs> I got a good one and I can't wait to tell you. And mine's about Reagan. Now, the, we're not, this isn't going to have any theme at the beginning. We're just going to tell our, you our best anecdotes. So mine's about Reagan. And um, this is a family, the Reagan family, that was so dysfunctional that I think it may have been the most dysfunctional family to ever reside we'll in the White that. House. <laughs> you, you've got a couple of yeah. to. Uh, the kids didn't talk to their parents. And uh, I, I don't think that, he, that they saw the grandparents very much. But in, a, in any event, a little known story is that, well, before I tell you the little known story, everybody knew that Maureen Reagan, who was the daughter of Jane Wyman, the first wife, and Nancy Reagan, the second wife, didn't like each other at all and almost never spoke to each other. And yet, when President Reagan was shot, and Maureen Reagan told me the story herself, uh, she, Maureen walked into this ante room outside of Reagan's room, and there was Nancy, all by herself, alone, sitting on a couch, looking terrified and the world was coming to an end because we know that that relationship between Ronnie and Nancy was as tight as the, any pres presidential first couples could be. And Maureen just went and sat right next to her and never said a word, they didn't talk, and they just sat next to each other and comforted each other. And then, guess what? Maureen Reagan, little known, moved into the White House. And Maureen Reagan, who had had this horrible relationship with Nancy, lived in the White House. And it has always been my belief that Maureen, this wild feminist who had publicly spoken out against her father because he was against the Equal Rights Amendment, worked on her stepmother. And I have always believed that Maureen Reagan had an enormous influence on Nancy Reagan in softening her conservatism, which I think was one of the reasons Nancy worked on him so much, 
which she did, to soften his conservatism. So that's my inside little anecdote. <laughs> and I think it's interesting. I wish, and I don't think we'll ever know, I wish someone really knew about what was going on in that triangle in that White House, Maureen, Nancy, and Ronnie, and what really was changing in terms of policies. We'll never know, because Maureen died, Ronnie died, and Nancy will never tell. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to call on my friend Gil Troy, who is a brilliant presidential historian, for his favorite anecdote. Thank you, Leslie. Good evening. It's April 1945, and Franklin Roosevelt dies suddenly. Now, of course, anybody who'd watched Roosevelt over the last few months knew that the mark of death was on his face, but Roosevelt was the president. It was inconceivable that he would die and that his undistinguished vice president, Harry Truman, would take over. At the Truman House, a very modest apartment on Tilden Avenue in Washington, D.C., they get the call. Bess Truman bursts into tears and turns to his, her daughter, Margaret, and says, get dressed. Find a good dress. While Margaret is looking for the dress, the doorbell rings. And Margaret, distracted, opens the door in her slip. And it's an Associated Press reporter. And she cl closes the door and says she realized that she was no longer a free agent. The public had now invaded their lives. And of course, two years later, when she appeared at a concert, because she was trying to build a, a singing career, and she was reviewed rather harshly in the Washington Post. This doesn't happen now because reporters are so nice. Like <laughs> You're right. <laughs> and the reporter, the critic, Paul Hume, complained that the voice was too reedy and too thin. Harry got pretty angry. And he wrote a letter to Paul Hume saying, You're worse than a gutter snipe, which was harsh words in those days. And he said that if you ever bumped into him, there's the President of the United States saying, if I ever bump into you, you're going to need a new nose, you're going to need some beefsteak for your eye, and you're going to need a little supporter for down there. <laughs> and Harry had a tendency sometimes to write these letters, but he would often have either Beth Bess mail them or one of his aides mail them, and they knew not to mail them. But there was a new guy who listened to the President of the United States and mailed the letter. Oh, my God. Hume, having ties to the media, being a Washington Post reporter, reported it. And now you have this undignified situation of the President of the United States threatening this reporter. And his aides are appalled. But what happens? While everybody's attacking him, and while his aides are saying, don't do it, he realizes that his poll ratings go up and people love it. Because he was acting like a dad. And he looks at his aides and he says, you boys don't understand. This is human nature, and I understand human nature. But of course, what we saw was that the public had indeed invaded their lives. And when Mrs. Truman, Harry's mother, would come visit, she'd look and say, you have all this power. Why can't you shoo those people away? <laughs> and it's not so easy living life in private. It's much harder to live it in public. Which they all do. <laughs> that was great. OK, Kati. Well, I want to take you back to that same month of that year, April 1945. Um, FDR has just died. Um, FDR having been president for, for 12 years and married to Eleanor for over 40 years. Eleanor leaves the White House carrying just a little bag. In those days, uh, there was very little foldy roll, as she would call it, around the White House. No, no gates, minimal security. And she is, of course, besieged by the entire 
White House press corps, which in those days con consisted of about 12 men. And they all want a reaction from the First Lady uh, as to this stunning development, which has left the country reeling because most people had never known, a lot of people had never known any other president. The First Lady, however, is remarkably composed, almost chillingly so. And so they want to know, what is, what is your reaction, Mrs. Roosevelt? And she says in a very flat, uninflected voice, well, I was one of those who served his purposes. Oh, really? The backstory to that is that she had just been dealt the greatest blow, the second greatest blow of her life, the first one when she discovered uh, in her, as, as she was unpacking her husband's suitcase, never unpack your husband's suitcase. <laughs> or always. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but don't do it just once. A packet of love letters which revealed that uh, Franklin had been having an affair with her social secretary, Lucy Mercer. That was, she said, the bottom fell out of her life. Well, the second uh, at that moment in 1918, flash forward 1945, uh, she had been to stay with Franklin he had promised that he would, he would never again see Lucy Mercer. Eleanor had just discovered that uh, actually Franklin died in Lucy's arms in, hot, in Warm Springs, and that indeed their daughter Anna had been the go-between, arranging meetings between Lucy and Franklin. So lonesome was Franklin because Eleanor who in every other way was a remarkable character, was extremely callous uh, in, in, uh, faced with, with her husband's obvious uh, deterioration. She did not want to deal with that. I, I frankly think that that had, that something, that there was a residual anger that, that she hadn't quite worked out and she didn't want to be there at the end, but Lucy was there at the end and, and the, the betrayal uh, was, uh, was compounded by the fact that it was their daughter who had brought Lucy back. So, um, so and this she was- she went public with this? With, yes, yes, I, I, I quoted in, mm -hmm. in my book, so it must be true. And then she turned, and, and they wanted more, of course, and she said, boys, they were all men, the story is over. And of course, the irony of that is, is enormous because Eleanor's story was really just beginning yeah. because oh. she completely uh, reinvented herself as, as, as sort of first lady to the world and uh, you know the signatory and initiator of the um, Human Rights Declaration of the United Nations and she became, she really came into her own from that very sad day forward. I'm sorry, it's not an amusing anecdote. <laughs> they don't but, have to be amusing. But I, but I think it does, great. but it sheds a, a lot of light on, on what I consider really the, the most interesting and the richest marriage in, in the presidential pantheon. You know, Kati's book on first couples is just fabulous and just one nugget after the next. And I will also tell you that David Nassau's book on Joseph Kennedy is diamonds, rubies, sapphires, every page you're learning something with your jaw opened about Joe Kennedy. And I mean, it's just, so I'm hoping his anecdote is about the Kennedys. <laughs> David. Can we lure one out of you? Yes. Oh, good. We're gonna jump 
about 15, 16 years. It is December 1961. It is the 323rd day of the Kennedy presidency. And Jack has just left Palm Beach. He's left behind Jacqueline and Caroline. Joe, the patriarch, drives Jack to the airport and then goes directly to the golf course to play nine holes of golf. At the 16th hole, they had to do the back nine because the first nine was too crowded. He feels faint and wobbles for a minute and then sits down on a bench and tells his niece, who was playing golf with him, who had moved into the, the household, Ann Gargan, um, you go on, play through. And then he stumbled. And she called his caddy and said, go get a cart. He always walked, no cart for him. <coughs> Took him back to the house. Um, he said, I, I'm tired. But when he saw Caroline and Jackie, Caroline said, you know, come swimming with us. He said, I'll be right down. He went upstairs to take a nap. Uh, the family heard coughing <coughs> and a man trying to catch his, catch his breath. Uh, <coughs> he had suffered a massive stroke. Um, the most dominant man in the room the center of attention, this man who was in his 74th year and handsome, dignified, strong, always dressed in custom-made suits that fit perfectly, in a stroke, by a stroke, was turned into a crippled, gnarled, wheelchair-bound man who had lost all capacity to communicate. All he could say was no. I would always like, one of my future challenges is to change fiction and nonfiction into history and non-history. Um, my history stories and the stories that we've heard here are stranger and more spectacular than fiction, I think. If I were to tell this story as a novel, no one would believe it, that this man could only say no for the last eight years of his life. Mm. And by the tone in which he said it, you could tell whether it meant no or yes. If he mm. bellowed it, it meant no. If he twinkled and said no, it meant yes. Mm. During the first 320 days of his son's presidency, he did not go to the White House. He snuck in once because Carolyn wanted to show him the duck pond. But he knew if he showed up at the White House, the rumors would start again that he was pulling the strings, that his son was the puppet. So he stayed away. He went twice after his stroke. And one of the visitors at both events was Ben Bradley. <laughs> who, thank God, happens to be an extraordinary writer. And Ben Bradley tells the story of one dinner with the family. Ted was there, 
Bobby was there, Ethel was there, Joan was there, and Ben and his wife. And Joe, they had drinks in, I guess, a sitting room or reception room. Then they would walk into the dining room. And Joe demanded that he was not going to take his wheelchair. He was going to walk in. And Jackie took one arm, and his niece took the other arm. And with his niece kicking his leg, because it didn't work, the knee locked, he got in. He sat down, and he drooled through the entire dinner. But Jackie sat next to him and very deftly wiped the drool off. And at the end of the dinner, as Ben Bradley tells this story, at the end of the dinner, Bobby and Ted, who had involved their father in every conversation, whatever the conversation, they would look at him and say, what do you think, Dad? And he would, he would nod. At the end of the evening, the boys decided they were going to sing a song. And they sang a song. Um, Teddy loved to sing, uh, and couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. I don't know about, about Bobby. The boys sang a song, and everybody clapped. And Ben Bradley said, and Joe applauded too with his eyes. Mm. Whoa. Well, in our lifetimes, first families have kind of been models, or they've tried to be the perfect families, the almost, uh, I don't know, for their own political, obviously, benefit, but to teach us something. Has that always been the case? Has the first family always been up there as a, as a representative, uh, representative of the way we should be living our lives? I would say that from the beginning, the White House, given the fact that, that it was both the place of, of work and the family's residence, had a rather monarchical aspect to it. And, and perhaps, too, there was some uh, residual nostalgia for the monarchy we had just uh, overthrown, too. Uh, it had, from George and Martha's day, always had the aspect of a court. And therefore, it was in the center of the, of the nation's did, did attention. Did they have children? No, no. Well, that, they, they that did not. The father of our country did not have children. Right. Well, you know. She had children. She had. She had. Yes, she had. Martha, Martha. Martha had. had two so he, right. so, so he, he, was, had, he had, had stepchildren. Right. But were they were they young in the White House? No, no. no. Okay, I, I asked that. Nor the Washingtons. <laughs> I went to a wonderful lecture here once, where somebody said the reason we didn't become a monarchy is because George didn't have a son mm -hmm. to pass it on to, and it was very significant that he didn't have a son. Yeah. But, but I, so I think the answer to your question is, is yes. They've, they've always been, obviously, um, in the focus of, of not only uh, the country, but, but the world. And, uh, and so you know, who, who wouldn't attempt to rise to, to the occasion? But I, but I think you're absolutely right to point out that there's a great difference between their chosen image of themselves and their reality. 
And when, when I was researching hidden power, I discovered, and I, and I was lucky enough to, to interview all the surviving presidential couples. And uh, boy, what they reveal about themselves could fill a thimble. But so to get to, 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 to get, because they're, they're so entrenched yeah. in their own image of, and how they, and they're well, talking to history. You taught me something, because uh, I wrote a book, and Gil was one of my great advisors on the book, that, um, that sometimes when they're in the public as much as they are, you told me this, when people are in, in before the public as much as presidents are, they become to believe themselves the image that they're portraying. And you told me some of these marriages actually get better. Mm -hmm. Do you remember telling right, me? You, yeah, you hold up a mirror and everybody's looking at you and you start believing it, living it up, living up to it. Um, and we also see that the White House often healed these marriages. But I'd like to also add yes, that please. one of the crucial things that changes things is the invention of the media. And um, in the 20th century, we see a major change. And we also have this explosive new family called the Teddy Roosevelt family that comes into the White House after the McKinley assassination. And they, like the Lincoln family, are young and boisterous. But now they're also being young and boisterous in public because it's now the White House has become the bully pulpit. So uh, you have someone like Alice Roosevelt who makes a career basically of being a snarky, tough uh, woman with, uh, with all kinds of one-liners, both in the White House and for decades thereafter. Uh, so she'll say, you know, when Warren Harding dies that he's not a, he wasn't a bad man, he was just a slob. And, um, and, and it's really with the, the Teddy Roosevelt family that you start seeing people really looking. And then, of course, the Franklin Roosevelt family brings it to a whole operatic level where you have five children with 19 marriages between them. Um, but you but talk should... about image makers. Mm. I mean, who, who were more concerned about the way they presented themselves in the beginning of the television age than the yeah. Kennedys? Well, Joe knew that his children, or hoped that his children, would be in the public eye. And he taught them, every one of them, how to appear, how to perform mm. for the newsreel cameras. From the time, we, when you watch some of these newsreels mm. and you see Teddy, you know, who's five, and Bobby, who's mm. you know, eight, nine, they're already poised. They know exactly what to say. Um, Joe bought the nannies some of the first video recorders. Um, and the nannies took pictures of the kids, and the kids watched those pictures. And then the kids, as they got older, took videos of themselves. So it's no secret that in 1960, uh, Jack did so much better. Could I pick up on, on a point that sure. Troy made about how the White House is good for marriages? It really yeah. is. <laughs> is it's, it? not, it's not a great place for kids. No. It's not a great place to raise kids, and I'm sure we'll get to, to why that is. But it is good for couples. No divorces have ever followed uh, the, uh, the, the White House. And, um, and in fact, marriages that were not very strong before, uh, for example, uh, Betty and Jerry Ford, who had a rather unequal relationship, and she famously had a nervous breakdown because she wasn't getting any TLC uh, from, from Jerry. Once they got to the White House, the White House is an equalizer. Suddenly, uh, this stay-at-home suburban <laughs> wife, Betty, uh, was the first lady of the land. And someone, uh, a personage in her own right, and she began to become the truth teller, which after, which after uh, six, I believe, six stilted 
Pat and Dick Nixon years was exactly what the nation was hungry for, you know, some authenticity, flinging open those, those windows. And so it was with Jack and Jackie as well. Yeah. Um, when, when a Life magazine uh, reporter came to interview Jack, first, first Life uh, profile of Jack when they moved into the White House, um, and, and asked to talk to Jackie, he said, what do you want to talk to her for? She's out of it. Well, six months later, he introduced himself to, to the French people as I'm the man who accompanied Jacqueline Kennedy to Paris. So, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting One of the reasons shift. the marriages get better, and Barbara Bush had a lunch once with reporters and told us the secret. She said, come on, follow me. And she walked us to a window where the first lady up on the second floor can see into the Oval Office. <laughs> and she, the first lady, from that moment on, when they move in the White House, can keep their eye on that guy. <laughs> and who knows what the men were doing before, but the, the wife now could watch every move. I don't think Jackie could do that. No, no. I don't think Jackie. <laughs> or wanted to. Jackie, right, or wanted to. I think one of the, you know, in the, in the image uh, area, one of the real problems the presidents have is with their, many presidents have had, is with their siblings. Um, not every president has had a wife. Not every president has had children in the White House. But they've all had siblings, every one. There are no only children who became presidents. Can I just say that there's only been one president, James Buchanan, who did not have a wife? So uh, it's, it's pretty tough to get elected president without a spouse. But are there widow? There are widowers, no? No. Jefferson. Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson. Oh. Yeah. And, uh, and Grover oh. Cleveland got married in the White House, right. which yeah. is married yeah. in the whole as, 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 yeah, right. as did Woodrow but what, Wilson. But what is the significant? Tell us about the significance. Yeah. Well, I, I just found it, found it extraordinary because you know, for the Kennedys, the Kennedys come to the White House as a family. I mean, Bobby's right there. Eunice plays an extraordinary role as a, as a presidential sibling, one that historians haven't paid enough attention to. Um, so I just wanted to. Well, wait, to what take did Eunice do? Tell us. Oh, <laughs> we Eunice. Love Eunice. <laughs> okay. We love Eunice. Eunice is in uh, when Jack is choosing his cabinet in Palm Beach. Eunice is in the hospital in Massachusetts. Eunice was as sick as Jack was. This is a revelation had, in the book. Tell him what well, he she had. she had Addison's disease. Did anybody oh. know that Eunice Kennedy Shriver had Addison's disease? Yeah. No, you read, this is, this is a big revelation well, the, in your book. The, you know, the family told me about it as if everybody knew no, it. No, but go on, so I'm I thought sorry everybody to did. interrupt. Well, she was sick all the time. The, the Kennedys were divided into, Rose looked after everybody's diet, and they were divided into the ones who had to lose weight and the ones who had to gain weight. <laughs> and Eunice was one of the ones, and Jack, who had to gain weight. Eunice is in the hospital. Everybody is down in Palm Beach. The house is, it's just a madhouse. Uh, Jackie is there with her new baby and her nurse and her press agent and her, her press secretary and her regular secretary. Um, there are dozens and dozens of dignitaries of well-wishers coming in and out. Um, Rose is frantic because she doesn't want people dragging in dirt and sand into the house. Um, poor Eunice is stuck in the hospital. And she calls her father and she says, you know, I, I just read, I've got nothing else to do here, a report that said that 
The federal government is spending no money on mental retardation. She uses, used those words at the time, on mental retardation. I think the Kennedy Foundation should hold a conference right away to talk about this. Mm. And Joe says, Eunice, get well, come south, we'll talk about it. Eunice comes south, she enters the house, first thing out of her mouth is, what are we gonna do, Dad? He says, well, let's go talk to Jack, the president-elect. They go to talk to Jack, and they decide, the three of them, that this is going to be a priority in the White House. And they're not gonna trust Congress. Mm -hmm. They're not gonna trust anybody else. They are going to establish a special commission on mental retardation that will be part of the executive office that will report recommendations for legislation to the executive office. And this is Eunice. Eunice does not stop. And because her brother is the attorney general, and another brother is a senator, <laughs> and another brother is the president, and because Eunice is powerful, is articulate, will not, say, will not accept no, uh, the budget for research into mental retardation and for institutions to care for the mentally retarded, uh, the intellectually challenged, and later a whole group of disabled people uh, goes through the roof. And the, the American, the US government takes on a new task. Okay, new round, new round. Do another round of anecdotes. And this time, if you have a th theme to present with it, Feel free. Shall I start again? I'm going to yes. start again. <laughs> well, mine, mine is a twofer. It starts with uh, Taylor Branch's book on Bill Clinton. And the best part of the book is whatever Bill Clinton is doing, if Chelsea calls, and it doesn't matter what he's doing, he stops. And he leaves the meeting, he leaves the war room, he leaves the Oval Office to go help Chelsea write a paper, to go help Ch Chelsea with a test. He doesn't take trips if Chelsea has a test the next day, because he's got to help her the night before. So I love that story. And that dovetails with what you see in the movie Lincoln. And what I'm going to tell you will so enrich your second time you go see the movie. <laughs> and that is that when um, Mary Lincoln gets, when, the, when their child dies, when Willie dies, she is so broken by it and, and distressed, and the mourning and the grief is so overwhelming that she is unable to mother their younger child, Tad, who reminds her of Willie so much that she cannot, he disgusts her. And Lincoln, as portrayed in the movie, becomes the mother and the father to this boy. And much, I'm not suggesting this is what happened with the Clintons, but much like the Clintons, if Tad wanted his father, whatever Lincoln was doing, he stopped, he dropped everything, and he turned to his son. And he brought his son in on his lap for meetings, and he would carry his son to bed at night. And he, he, he dealt with him the way a woman would. He was very physical, and this was all documented, and I just loved that part of the movie. And I think your story about Harry Truman is similar. I think there are fathers, and so many of the children have been girls. There are fathers who just 
dote on their children when they're president. I don't know if all the children have come out well. A lot haven't. But I've seen a lot of very, very loving fathers. And we have a doting father in the White House right now. Mm. You talk about a model family, right? I, when I read the New York Times article about Michelle uh, and Barack Obama's parenting style, where uh, the kids are not allowed to use cell phones or computers during the week, I want a little bit of that in my house. <laughs> and, uh, and, Mich and Michelle says to the two daughters that they have to pick two sports, one that they want to do and one which they don't like to do so that they learn that you sometimes have to suck things up and, and work hard. And you start seeing that Barack Obama, like Bill Clinton, didn't have a father. And I think there was also a certain theme of oh. many presidents who came in who were fatherless and very strong mothers. I mean, you're talking about a very powerful father figure. But if you look down the list, you have Barack Obama. You have Bill Clinton, who never met his father. His father died uh, in an accident uh, shortly before he was born. You have Ronald Reagan, whose father was around, but the mother was the formidable force. And Reagan tells stories about dragging his father drunk into the house to avoid the neighbor's yeah. stairs. Um, you have uh, Rebecca Johnson. Lyndon Johnson's mother was very powerful, and the father was a, a drunkard. So you see this theme FDR. of fatherless. FDR. Uh, FDR, right? Uh, Sarah Delano Roosevelt, uh, extremely formidable. And so then you have the fatherless father of our country, who then tries indeed to become wow. a doting father. Wow. And, uh, and, and it shows that there's something about political leadership that sometimes becomes a way of filling in a little psychic hole. And I think Barack Obama, who's one of the things he, I think he's enjoyed about being president, is for his children's life, until they moved to Washington, he was always working elsewhere. They were in Chicago. He was in Springfield. They were in Chicago. He was in Washington. They didn't just move to the same house, but they actually even moved to the same city. And that was, that was a relief in and of itself. But I think it would also be excruciating to have uh, your father as president when Jimmy Carter was in Argoland. It was 1979, and things weren't going so well. People asked him about his daughter, Amy. And they said, oh, does she ever brag about you? He said, no, I think she apologizes about me. <laughs> you know, as well she should have. <laughs> I, I think, I think um, the Obamas really are exceptional in, in their um, parenting. Um, and I think partly um, they're, they're exceptional in the brevity of their political history. Because unlike almost all the other uh, White House marriages that I write about, they did not claw their way to the White House. And it was not a shared mission between husband and wife to get to the White House, quite the contrary. Um, the, most, most other couples, it's a, it's a two-person enterprise. You both have to want it a 1,000%. Um, and, and that leaves uh, a deficit in the parenting department. And certainly Reagan and Roosevelt, two of our great presidents, were not good parents. Um, I, I remember uh, chasing Amy Carter uh, around the, um, the Berlin Zoo when I was covering um, Carter's first uh, overseas trip when I was working for ABC, Leslie. And, uh, and by the end of that day, she was such a little brat. I really, <laughs> I really was hoping that she'd land in the Tigers game. <laughs> uh, but she was just a spoiled brat. I'm sure she's now a lovely, productive citizen. Well, wait a minute. Uh, but, but, well, they, but the deficit in parenting is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a universal Amy, theme. Amy was the kid they sent to public school. And they did it very, very publicly. And you know they didn't protect her. Mm -hmm. They didn't put her first. I always thought she was absolutely miserable in the White House. Mm -hmm. 
about three or four years ago, I did a story on Jimmy Carter, and I interviewed Amy for the piece. Uh -huh. And I said, well, how awful was it for you living in the White House? And you know what she said? Mm. I loved it. What are you talking about? <laughs> she never cracked a smile. She, she was, told me so, she loved it. Yeah, there you go. Well, <laughs> retro, retrospective history. I want you, if I can implore you, to tell a story about how the, how the family got Bobby to be attorney general. Okay. Uh, the last thing in the world Robert Kennedy wanted was to be attorney general. He said, he said to his brother, he said, look, I've been chasing bad guys for a long time. Leave me alone, please. He understood the charges of nepotism that were going to fall all over the, the family. Uh, and he, he didn't want to do it. He wanted to, to set out his own path. He had been the campaign manager for his, for his brother. He was in his shadow. He wanted to do something. The patriarch mm -hmm. said to Jack, Jack said, do you have any suggestions for cabinet? Any names? Thinking that Joe would say, well, for Secretary of the Treasury, you should think about so-and-so. He said, one. He said, and it's not a suggestion. He said, I want Bobby to be your attorney general. He said, mm -hmm. you can't trust anybody. This was what Joe had grown up believing. You can't trust anybody. You need somebody to have your back. You don't know any of these people in your cabinet. Some of them you've never met. You've got to have Bobby there because he's the only one who's going to care. Jack talked to Bobby. Bobby said no. They offered the job to Abe Ribicoff. Abe Ribicoff said, I don't want to do it. Went back to Bobby, Jack, and said, Jack said, please, we got to do it for Dad. Bobby said, no, can't do it. They recruited Clark Clifford to go talk to Joe and say, this is impossible. And Clark Clifford said it was the weirdest thing that had ever happened, that a son is asking an outsider to talk to a father about a brother. <laughs> so Clifford prepares. Clifford is one of the smoothest brightest, most articulate, powerful lawyers, negotiators in Washington. He goes to meet with Joe. Joe listens very, very carefully. When Clifford has finished his presentation in which he says, you just you can't do this, um, Joe says, Clark, terrific presentation. Thank you very much. I just want you to know one thing. Bobby will be attorney <laughs> And it was good for Jack that he was, because he had his back. Absolutely. He begins as attorney general, and they try to maintain a separation until the Bay of Pigs. And, and at the Bay of Pigs, from that moment on, Bobby is his closest advisor. Bobby is there at, at every moment, and whatever at least Jack thought, whatever he achieved in the White House. Can I jump um, in with a, with a little uh, Clark Clifford uh, postscript oh, yeah. to that? Of course, um, Clark Clifford was, was the Kennedy family fixer, in addition to, yeah. to uh, having been the counsel to every president between uh, Harry Truman and um, Lyndon Johnson. 
and uh, and he was the one who would be uh, summoned when uh, when when Kennedy uh, was in um, a pickle with uh, with one of the many women that that um, we we now know but did not in real time. Um, he was having affairs with particularly some fairly uh, risky ladies such as Judith Campbell, uh, the the mafia Exner. mall Exner, Judith Campbell. Um, Exner and I, I went to interview uh, Clifford um, when uh, for my uh, for the chapter on the on the Kennedys, and he was of course extraordinarily reserved <laughs> about this sensitive subject. But something kind of um, snapped, and I said, um, "Were you were you at all disappointed in uh, in Kennedy's personal behavior?" Because until then, in the interview, he'd been he'd been you know the, all the well polished lines about you know uh, Camelot and and the perfect uh, couple and the and and the beauty of the first lady and the elegance of the president. And I said, "Were you?" And he said, "Don't get me started on that." <laughs> um, mm. If I once I start talking about a man who went into the White House and had everything going for him. Uh, great intelligence, great wealth, um, the most beautiful wife, and who still, and at that point, I, I mean, I have it on tape, he, he, stops, he stopped himself uh, because he, he knew that if he, in fact, he said, if I start, I'll never stop. <laughs> so, you know, you just had this sense of, of just this tremendous personal disappointment at, at Kennedy's uh, behavior. And of course, the big difference, Leslie, between then and now is that the media didn't cover that. When, when Pierre Salinger was asked, to, does the president ha uh, have a mistress, he, he, Pierre said, he's the president of the United States. He doesn't have any time to have girlfriends. Well, uh -huh, uh -huh. somehow he found, he the, found time. the time. Uh -huh. Speaking of time, it's time for us to invite anybody from the audience who would like to ask some questions. There's microphones right in the aisles. He was a great And we'll go back and forth. Here comes a very gentle question. Hi, I'm Jim Pucinich. Uh, Mr. Nassau, can you talk a little bit about Joe Kennedy Sr.'s reaction to the death of Joe Kennedy Jr., who was, mm. who was supposedly the favorite son to become the president? He never recovered. Hmm. He said over and over again, and he, and he only said this. He was, he was a very emotional man. He hugged his boys. He cried. He, but he only unburdened himself to his friends who lived in Europe, who he could write letters to, but he didn't have to see. And he said to three of them, he said, I wish I had Rose's faith. Rose can accept this. Mm. I never will. Mm. And he never did. But you, in the book, make Jack out to be so much more thoughtful, as if the right one did become president. Mm. Joe would not have been elected president. No. I mean, Joe just didn't. His didn't politics have were it. very right wing. His politics were right wing. He didn't have the work ethic. One of the, Jack was sick so much of his life. He spent years in bed. And while he was in bed, he read history. Mm. He was a, you know, he, he wrote beautifully and, and he knew what he was talking about most of the time. 
<laughs> but we don't talk about too much. Calvin Coolidge, our image of him is kind of a sourpuss. <laughs> what about his relationship uh, with Grace, with his wife? Does anybody know Try. about <laughs> Calvin? <laughs> well, Grace Coolidge was a, was a pistol. She was a very interesting, uh, dynamic woman who in the 1920s, there's some pictures of her where she looks like a flapper. She, ca she captured some of the vibe of the 1920s. So indeed, uh, Calvin Coolidge was lacking a little bit in personality, and she uh, more than made up for it. Um, but of course, they had the great tragedy where their son John was playing tennis in the White House lawn and stubbed his toe, and it turned into an infection, and he died. Um, while they were in the White while House. While they were in the White House. Mm -hmm. And Coolidge said that it took all the joy out of the White House for him, and, and he, he, he also never recovered. Mm -hmm. Hi. Hi. This is for Ms. Martin. Um, you had a wonderful um, anecdote about Lucy Baines, jo Lucy Johnson, Lucy. Um, oh, no, Lady Bird, Lady Bird. And when Earth Wait, the, the, uh, an anecdote that I've told this in evening? In Hidden Power. Oh, in Hidden Power. And when she came to a luncheon that she had arranged, she invited Eartha Kitt. Eartha Kitt. Oh, and yes, Lady Bird. And I read it so Bird. long ago, and I so wanted to tell people about it, but I couldn't, it oh. was not clicking in my yeah, brain. Yeah, it was, it was, a, tell that. thank you. It was, it was at the height of the Vietnam War, and, um, and, and Eartha Kitt, uh, first of all, I have to confess that Lady Bird was was really my my favorite yeah. of the of the surviving. She was she was just a great lady. And and can I just slip in this tiny Absolutely. anecdote? I was Please. with Lady Bird watching um, the famous um, Matt Lauer interview with Hillary Clinton the the, the day that Monica um, exploded. And to sit there with Lady Bird and watch this was really something. She she was devastated by. The because, of course, um, her husband, Lyndon Bays Johnson, was an Olympic champion philanderer. And here was this, here was this rank amateur, Bill Clinton. <laughs> and bringing, bringing the nation, uh, you know, paralyzing the nation. And she turned to me and she said, you know, um, we are going to lose the best men. It didn't occur to her that a, a woman would ever be president. The oh. best men, if we hold them to these standards. <laughs> and then, then she went on, she said, I want my president to be concerned with me. I don't want my president to be concerned with his personal life. I want him to be the president of all the people. What he does in his personal life is between he and his wife. She was so vehement about that. Um, but but this, was, this was a lunch that, that, that Lady Bird had in the White House, at, and Eartha Kitt completely subverted her effort during the height of the Vietnam War when you could hear uh, outside the White House uh, gates, hey, hey, LBJ, how many kids did you kill today? Um, and and it, the White House was a bunker in those days. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, the, uh, and Johnson was collapsing under the weight of the, 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 the daily mounting uh, body count. And basically, Lady Bird was keeping things together. And Eartha um, Kitt made an absolute fool of herself and taunted this wonderful lady and, and said, uh, you probably don't know uh, anything about what's going on in the real world out there. And you, pro you don't speak the lingo, lady. And you need to smoke uh, some and dope, you need she to said. Smoke <laughs> some dope. And, and, and Lady Bird just smooth as silk throughout, did not rise to the bay. And and uh, and said, well, we well, will we will hear you out. And uh, but now it's my turn. 
and then, then she's. A lady bird had a lot of experience in just swallowing and writing things yeah. down. <laughs> but she never lost. She never lost her uh, her dignity or her core. She was yeah. unlike Pat Nixon, who yeah. really was consumed by uh, by Destroyed. sadness and and uh, you know just withered before our eyes. Uh, the saddest couple, I think, were Pat and Dick. Um, lady bird um, kept her kept kept her dignity and was incredibly important to her husband. And he showered her with affection. And yeah, I mean he was he was a devouring personality, yeah. but but she understood that she was indispensable to him. Right. Okay, here we go. Being that they're considerably less public than perhaps the president and his immediate family, uh, although still very much in the spotlight, uh, perhaps more so now than in the past. How much more, in terms of scandal or, or affairs or juicy things, do you think the vice presidential family could get away with, or has already gotten away with, um, versus the? It's a great question because yeah, the spotlight isn't there at all. Who knows anything about vice president? What are you saying about Joe Biden anyway? <laughs> yeah, really. What what is behind that? I think the answer is a whole lot more since none of us knows anything about Vice President. <laughs> I think when the Gores were uh, Vice President, Mrs. Vice President, we could say, uh, there were issues in the Gore marriage, we now know, and there were also issues uh, in the Gore family. There were rumors of occasional marijuanas, but we didn't know it. We didn't know it. Yeah. And uh, it's really, it's about the first family. It's about the fact yeah. that we, and, and it goes back to one of the things you said, that we live in this world, we live in this country well, where we have the, the, the monarchy and the prime minister all, all mixed in one. Yeah. And it's, it's the power of the, that first yeah. family that becomes capital F, capital F when they're inaugurated. And the public really doesn't even care no. unless it's the president. president. I remember when Teddy Kennedy was uh, a senator, he, no one paid attention. He could do almost anything. He ran for president, mm -hmm. even <laughs> running for president. And the Chappaquiddick questions came flying he said he wasn't going to run. It went away again. So I think just the public giving power to that office focus. and the focus and, and the and White House. You know, it's our it's our Buckingham uh -huh. Palace. Uh -huh. and, and I think there's Kati a great deal of resentment when a first lady tries to take power of any kind because she wasn't elected. We didn't give her the power, and we resent it when she tries to become a policy person. And you see, when Hillary Clinton became a senator. It was much safer. We when she, well, right. she was elected. Right, she was right. elected, and it was, a, it, was a, it was an authentic process. When she was first lady, when she crossed that invisible line, explosive. Yeah, the public didn't like the, it. The only one, the Cheneys are the, the one exception, mm -hmm. I think. Well, because I but, think we knew yeah. more than we wanted to know <laughs> about the Cheney household. Yes. But don't you love that he's yes. for same-sex marriage? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but for self, but for selfish reasons. I don't even want to give no, him that. because he has a daughter. <laughs> because and he's he has a, a daughter. Well, yeah, it's not otherwise, selfish. It's paternal. No, it's paternal. I think it's but good. otherwise, I Leslie, like do you really think he'd come no. out for if, if he doesn't have a <laughs> so personal, uh, you know, from no, all of the course not, humanity but he, but in he, him? It goes against his grain, and he's still doing yeah. it. Yeah. So I think it's a, a mark of a good father. Yeah. I do. Who wh whose side am I on over here? <laughs> I think it's your turn. Um, good evening. Um, I have a question for Gil Joy, um, and it, from an educational standpoint, actually. Um, I work at a school that you may remember, uh, Salman Schechter School of Queens. Okay. And, um, My elementary school. 
Thank you. Mm. And I wanted yes. to ask you, um, on the campuses today at McGill, how are you, um, what is, actually, what is the period of history that you get on the most reaction from your students? What elicits the most interest in them um, as a, it could possibly be changing from year to year, perhaps, not every class is the same, but what is the period that interests currently your students right now? It's an interesting question. One of the fascinating things I teach in Canada is I teach courses that are filled with 150 students every semester. And like this room, it's filled to the brim, and it's only the size of the room that, uh, that limits the number of students. Um, the question I get most asked is a question perhaps you could answer best, which is uh, they continue to ask, who killed John Kennedy? Um, <laughs> the, that, that, that obsession continues. That's the question I get wow. most asked as an American historian. Uh, what was interesting was starting with 9-11 and then the Iraq war, you started seeing much more interest in foreign policy where students wanted to understand what's going on. And for a long time, anytime you talk about economics or foreign policy, they'd start sleeping. Now, there's much more interested in foreign policy. The economic crash has not, though, uh, interested humanity students in economic policy. They're still allergic to uh, anything with numbers. Oh, that's great. Uh, several of you um, mentioned and concurred that um, marriages get better in the White House. Mm -hmm. And an exception comes to my mind in terms of the Trumans, mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. Harry was never really able to persuade Bess to come to Washington and live with him. Mm -hmm. And he would send these plaintive letters back to Independence, Missouri, about how much he missed her and uh, uh, really was lost without her. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that was so sad. Oh, but but um, the, I I think Harry gets gets uh, f uh, my four stars for being the good husband. He was he was just such a doting and indulgent husband, and even allowed his mother-in-law, who was a real curmudgeon, <laughs> yes. uh, and didn't and 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 really thought that that uh, that Bess had married down. Um, <laughs> The president, um, and 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 Bess was devoted to her Thursday um, canasta game in in Independence, <laughs> and and hated to miss it. No first lady today could get away with what what Bess Truman got away with the 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 minimal effort that she put into uh, to being first lady. But again. She was indispensable to Harry. And the, actually, Clark Clifford told me the this, this story of how once um, uh, uh, Truman uh, pulled out a, a, a photograph from, from his uh, jacket and said, look at this. And it was a, a, a picture of Bess as a 12-year-old, uh, beautiful blonde Bess. Uh, and he said, call me an old fool, but this is still how I see her. Because they were childhood sweethearts. You know, I am so glad we're coming around, finally, to bring up the question of mothers-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> and mothers-in-law living in the White House. You have to come back for part two. <laughs> am I right? You have to come back for part two. Mothers-in-law is the next program. Oh, my God. Next oh, one. my God. I have to. So First mothers-in-law. Let us thank these amazing people. <laughs> <laughs>Just so you remember them all, it's Leslie Stahl, amazing Leslie Stahl, Gil Troy. Gil Troy from Canada. Our lovely Cotty Martin.
and our savior tonight, David Nassau. Just a reminder, they'll be signing their books on the Central Park West side. The museum store is to your right. Come again tomorrow night. We're screening Lincoln. Harold Holzer will be doing opening remarks. And thank you all for coming. <laughs>